0: Don't overcomplicate it. Just try to think through, like, what are the main drivers and what are the big things that can sink you rather than focusing on the things that, not to say they're not important. If I'm going to spend any effort and energy and my power, I'm going to put it on the things that matter most.
1: This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Our guest today is Lance Peterson. He's a returning guest, but it's been quite some time since he's been on the show. Uh, and, and there's been a number of things changed about his business, and you're going to hear about that today. Uh, but he is a, a GP with Resonance Capital Group, acquires Class B industrial properties in uh, U.S. heartland, uh, co founder of Passive Advantage, develops uh, software tools for passive investors to analyze real estate syndications. Uh, he's worked in a real estate investment management business. In 2008, formerly a GP in a private equity real estate firm that pivoted from hard money lending into capital allocation, went from zero to over 300 million in assets under management with his time in his time with the firm. Founded and managed a real estate fund admin firm that grew over three billion in, in assets and assisted 200 plus real estate sponsors with the architecture of their pool investment funds. So just a very experienced in the syndication space, very knowledgeable about funds and structuring. And and that's one thing I I really like about Lance. He's got a ton of experience working with lots of operators and lots of deals uh, and just structuring them properly uh, in in a lot of different ways. But today we're diving into the asset class of, of industrial. That's his big focus right now, but really helping passive investors or LPs know how to invest in that asset class, right? Some questions and things that Lance is going to bring up that you as a passive investor need to know as you're thinking about this asset class as a passive investment. let welcome back to the show. I'm looking forward to just having a conversation with you again. It's been a while. I was looking back. I think you were like show 970 something and maybe 300 something as well. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's been a while though uh, since we've connected. A few years anyway. So, looking forward to uh, just learning from you again, letting the listeners learn from you and your expertise. And no doubt our passive investors are going to love the show today and some of the things we're going to focus on. But give us a little update. What's happening with Lance now since you were on last a few years ago? You're focused now and let's dive in.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Whitney. Yeah. So, since last time we spoke, yeah, I've had some pretty big changes. So, I exited my Partnerships I was in, we we had a private equity real estate firm up in Portland, Oregon, and a fund administration company that had an investment platform, which is, I think, we talked about last time. So I I exited there at the end of 2021 and went out on my own. And so now I spend my time, I've switched over to the operator side of the equation. So I'm working with some former clients of mine. We formed a, a new general partnership and we're acquiring Class B industrial properties in the Midwest what I call the heartland states. And I've also partnered up with a, a passive investor, Sam Giordano to work on it. It's more of a software startup, um, a marketplace reboot called passive advantage. We've got an LP deal analyzer tool that we're uh, converting to an online tool and, and basically helping LPs do that. So, and I still maintain a consulting practice. I work with a lot of GPs, real estate sponsors around the country. Consulting with them on fund formation and architecture and structure and how do you compensate your partner GPs and all that, all that good stuff. So bringing all my ex- skills and experience sort of to bear and having a great time.
1: That's awesome. I appreciate the update. I think it's helpful for the listeners to hear different ways you're adding value to others as well there. Tell me before we jump on in, why, why class B industrial? Why that asset class?
0: My, my partners, and I always started acquiring more heavily, like in 2020, kind of divesting. They were divesting from some retail stuff. The, the reason I love Clathby B Industrial in particular is just it really the, sub, the supply and demand imbalance. Somewhere from two to 3% of the supply is depleted annually. It's just tore down. It's higher, better use in urban cores or was just the whole COVID and supply chain interruptions. The reshoring activity that's taking place. Yeah, it's much like multifamily. I mean, it still is, but certainly was even more so seven years ago where there just isn't enough of it and they can't build it fast enough, right? And so, I mean, I think last year they developed, they onboarded 500 million square feet, which is a record, but is pales in comparison to what the need is just with the growth of e-commerce and other tenant use cases ghost kitchens cannabis i mean you name it It, it's just i think it's just a great place to be and in my personal opinion is is poised to become the next sort of darling but of course i hope that the secret remains for a little longer although it it (laughs) seems like by the day that that's not proving to be the case but and and through my consulting engagements i worked with over 200 different groups around the country and Many of them were executing industrial strategies. And so I think that was the big thing for me too, is just I, I've had a front row seat to pretty much every strategy of manage, imaginable with real estate. And I always liked industrial. I mean, I always had a hard for mobile home parks too, but that's certainly been oversaturated. So that's really the my thesis on on why Yeah, you know it's interesting. As I see,
1: probably... I mean, who knows over the next few years? But I see more just more things being created, built, designed. Industry coming back to the U.S. most likely in a lot of ways, and in more industrial buildings, the use are needing us needing more and more. Right? I think that's probably okay. a wise move. Yeah, on your on your count or space, and, and it's probably not as flooded yet, right? As as some other asset classes with uh, operators, uh, so. Maybe you're getting in on the, some of the beginning of it anyway. Yeah, I think,
0: I think so. I mean, it's just, it looks like in terms of competition, when we're putting, you know, offers in on properties, we're not, you know, seeing a tremendous amount of competition and which is, which is usually the sign. And I feel like, especially when you feel really, really good about the basis you're getting in at that it's not quite flooded yet. And that might be different in different areas. Like I said, we're sort of in the upper Midwest areas and. But I like that area just because there's there's so much between waterways, rail, interstate, so much stuff moves east to west, north to south through that neck of the woods. But yeah, just super bullish on on Class B industrial in particular.
1: Well, let's jump into helping our our LPs, our passive investors, analyze the deal a little bit. Uh, and and I'd love I know you you've gained a lot of experience from this and helping others and, and and I I love the background too in helping. And working with so many different operators, right? And structuring deals and, and uh, the fund structures, those things. But even working through building a tool to help LPs, like, I don't know, there's just a lot of knowledge that's going to be gained by fleshing some of that stuff out, right? And and so uh, let's jump in there a little bit on helping, helping. you mentioned this before we even started, it's like helping them make better informed decisions, right? As, as they're investing, and even as an LP myself, it's like, I'm always looking to to learn right, always looking to, uh, for the other questions, uh, not only for me to ask operators as i'm investing, but also so i'm prepared right as 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 Lps come to us, like I want to make sure that myself or my team we also have the answers uh, that hey we've thought through those things right or, or check those things out, or we we know those things for our Lps, uh, and so when they come to us with those questions, we have the answers and it's, I feel like it's just a continual growing process, right? There, there's always some LP that asks me something I'm like, well, I'm going yeah. to I'm gonna put that on the list, right? Yeah. So we know, we know to figure that out next time, but ahead of time. But but anyway, let's dive in there a little bit and and maybe we start at an elementary level, but then I'd love to dive in a little more com- on some complex things that you're helping these to, to learn and to uh, be better and make better informed decisions as we invest.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think at the high level, right? I mean, you have to start with, each, each of these asset classes is different. And I think the good news over the last seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years is that we've really seen a lot more LPs or passive investors become really comfortable with the moving parts in multifamily deals. There, I mean, there's, there's always more to learn, as you said, but I think just as a, on whole and the value add strategy in particular, it's, it, in the podcast that I had, had done, I did 115 episodes and nothing like you did, but it was the real estate risk report. Right. And it was, I just think it's always important to step back and, and really try to think through with any offering that's put in front of you is just read those risk disclosures. They were written by an attorney. Don't freak out, but just try to internalize them and convert them into something more tangible. Right. And so I think that's, that's first and foremost is just understand what kind of risks you're facing. So like, if you're buying a core multifamily deal, as an example, I mean, you, you don't have, you don't have development risk. You, you don't have rehab risk or construction risk. There's just, those risks are off the table, right? And so, of course, when you remove risk from the table, that means that the expected return will be lower vis-a-vis if they existed. And so how occupied is the building? Just things like that, just trying to think through like what could go wrong or what are the risks? Obviously, you have things that we can't control, like floods and hurricanes and fires. You know, things like that. and of course, those are risks, but they can't necessarily be entirely or even close to entirely mitigated, right? so so I think that's where I always start. like as it pertains to in industrial or I mean any of these, you have to look at what are the the key drivers that make the business plan move, right? And those are the variables that you want to spend the most time looking at so in in the case of industrial as an example, you've got the building or buildings if there's a portfolio of them or whatever, and they exist in a given location or market and submarket. but you've got really the big driver is the lease, right the leases that exist or are in place on the given property and the tenants who've executed those leases right which is which I think is a bit of a difference from like multifamily where leases are generally one year long and you don't necessary and as long as they can pay the rent you're not really worried about underwriting the tenant so much right i mean are they are they good people and have not had trouble in the past it's just pretty simple but in the case of industrial if it's a if it's a local firm it's only been they're a, a fencing company or something been in business for three years that's like a local tenant then then there's more risk right because the risk of them defaulting on the lease is higher Whereas if it's a if it's a national credit tenant or investment grade tenant, someone who's actually has a credit rating with a rate ratings agency, things like that, then your risk is lower. But once again, that also means that your return will probably be lower, right? So you have to look at those th- those things when you're assessing the buildings, like who are those tenants, and then looking at the leases because even the best investment grade tenant, that lease might not be favorable, right? You might have a 15-year lease and the rents are 50% below market or just things like that. I mean, you can't get out of it, right? So assuming they're going to honor their lease, which you, if they're, they have that kind of investment grade rating, then they're probably stuck with it. And, that's your, and that drives your NOI. So the building's value is driven by NOI, right? So it's just, it's looking at those moving parts. And then I think the thing I like most about industrial is that really the building is, probably all not it's not that it's not as important right and so when we talk about like class b versus like class a in industrial it's more of the nondescript buildings you drive by that are that were built 20 years ago or 25 or 30 years ago and the things that matter most or that can really sink you is is the condition of the roof right maybe the parking lot but oftentimes these are Triple net leases where the, or maybe even absolute triple net lease where the, the tenant is really responsible for property taxes and insurance and those other things that can make a big difference. Like in a multifamily deal, we've seen the rise in, in insurance rates or property taxes in the case of a triple net lease. That's the risk that your tenants taking, And once again, to the degree that they are a strong tenant, they can absorb those things. So it's really, those are things we look at more so in in industrial but I think you have to do the same exercise with each of them don't overcomplicate it just try to think through like what are the main drivers and what are the big things that can sink you rather than focusing on the things that not to say they're not important if I'm going to spend any effort and energy and my power I'm going to put it on the things that matter most
1: I, I think the more I'm thinking about it as you're talking about it I, I feel like we all hear the terminology by, or the wording of risk knowing your risk and and your risk tolerance and all these things that we almost are complacent about it. Like we hear it so much. It's just like, we don't think about it as much. And and why I'm saying that too, is that like, I feel like a lot of times as an LP, we, we don't think about the risk versus reward, like you were talking about, or the, it's like a, something in a deal doesn't go exactly as planned and investors are, are, are like, they're upset, right? And maybe rightfully so but i but i think too oftentimes it was it probably was known that that was a risk probably going to happen but they didn't really internalize in the beginning that that's pretty likely that's going to happen <laughs> does that make sense no though it makes it makes perfect sense
0: <laughs> i think that's where when it comes down to then the terms that are extended to the lps that's what you have to keep in mind is to say because once again if you don't if you don't assess the risks that that are there that are that could be there that could be actualized first then you have no way of then backing into and giving them waiting right on the return so if if i'm telling you that i can get you into one of our industrial deals and it's projected at 11 or 12% cash on cash return with a a, a 3x equity multiple and an irr that equates to high 20s or whatever right i mean you if you've done the risk analysis then you can start to back down and say well if any of these risks are actualized, then I can appreciate that, that, that risk premium, that, that if things pretty much went as planned, th- that's what I was being compensated for was for taking said risk. Now, if those things actualize, then that means that you might end up only getting an 8% or maybe, maybe less, right? Like who, who knows what you could get, but I mean, that's why we have, you've got, we've got the risk-free treasury rate is sort of our What's the, the, the thing that's closest to a guarantee? And then you build up from there. I mean, and us as operators, we do the same thing. We look at the cost of debt and then we say, can we get in at some amount of basis points or percent, 2% above whatever our interest rate is and and up and, and execute our plan and get it to a yield that's something higher than that, right? And, and that's how we assess the deal, like as the active deal makers, right? But then when a translates to the LP, that's what you have to be thinking about is that how do I protect my downside risk? Should this operator not be able to execute as planned or should the risks actualize that maybe they couldn't completely mitigate? But like I think that's the right process for thinking about it is like when you see that return. And conversely, LPs, I think, need to do the, the opposite is that when something's coming to them with what they think looks low because everyone got really used to that right. multifamily boom and whatever, they, they need to look at it and say, okay, well, what are those risks? And, and maybe maybe that's still a good investment on a risk-adjusted basis.
1: Yeah, I, and I, I do. I agree with you completely as far as this, what you call the multifamily boom, right? And it really has set this like ex- expectation that I, that leads a lot of LPs to be disappointed with a projected return now, right? Or, or but I feel like too, I, I think it's it's a lot of operators now are, maybe I'm, I've learned to be more realistic In some in some regards of setting those expectations, I know even us, we early on we thought we were being transparent and communicating everything with investors. And as we've learned, right in more and more deals and more and more discussions with investors, like we're trying to be just like over the top, more even more transparent, more like setting accurate expectations, right? Like where we thought we did before, and it's like we've learned, okay, we still need to do a better job at this, right? And, And ensuring LPs. Understand what could happen, or what might happen, or just what to expect. Right, that it may not always be like it was three years ago or five years ago. Yeah, uh, that's, so, right. So, that's exactly
0: right. So it's all about setting expectations. That's
1: right. Lean into the industrial piece, maybe a little bit for our LPs, and and just the questions that they should be asking the operator that maybe that they wouldn't know to ask. Right, and, and I I could see. Investors, even the the multifamily investors, say that's been in multifamily a long time now, thinking about industrial as maybe the next asset class, but maybe not knowing exactly some things that they should know about industrial, right? Or they should be asking the operator, what are some of those things?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the big ones is just how do you go about leasing the property up? Like, okay, great. So you've got your weighted average lease term at, Acquisition, which means what's how long are these leases left on the books? If if it comes back, says 24 months, then it's like, well, well, how do you, how are you going to go about backfilling those tenants should those existing tenants not renew? So I think it, and it's, it would be similar to how retail operates, right? Like that's a big driver, like having those skill sets or ability to do that is a big driver. Meaning if somebody just rolls in and just decides suddenly that they're going to start buying industrial and hasn't done it, they're going to be, they're probably going to be at a pretty big disadvantage because it's it's very broker driven from the leasing perspective, even more so probably than the buying. So you might be able to acquire one, but just just understanding that. And of course, like we we do tend to buy more single tenant buildings, but there's more risk to a single tenant building, right? And of course, it all depends upon the strength of the, the tenant, right? But the whole building can go dark if one tenant decides to move out, right? So just understanding you know, that, whereas if it's like one of these flex parks, in you know, multi-tenant where they've got 40, 50 tenants, that's going to be more laborious to manage. But finding a, a large building that has two or three or four tenants, right, might be able to diversify it more. So just really getting comfortable that the operators understand that aspect of it and don't get as hung up on the property management or whatever. I mean, because it's, let's face it, you got three, two, three tenants in a building. I mean, they're, they're all sending you a check every month. Like the property management piece isn't, isn't nearly as challenging or difficult as it would be in multifamily where I personally, who's the property manager multifamily is looming large in my mind. And I think we're, many people are seeing that it makes a big, it can make a big difference. For sure. Uh, Who's, who's managing the property. So I think that's the big thing to hone in on is just, how do you plan on, what do you bring into the table in, in that regard? And like, in my case, like our part, my partners, he's been doing this for 20 plus years, a lot of it in, in, in retail, but retail industrial just have a lot of similarities in that regard, but it's, it's all about who you, want the relationships that you have. And in the acquisition that we're working on right now is a perfect example of that. The building sat vacant for the, it was an owner. Operate a building is have bacon for a year, and they tried to lease it, and 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 could never lease it. We 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 get under contract as a vacant building with basically a a tenant in our pocket, and that's so. so that's the different ways. That's how we add value. the value add industrial deal isn't the same as a value add multiple. We're not doing a bunch of construction necessarily. We're like that's not necessary. It's all in the financial engineering around the leases and the tenants.
1: And then the tenant may do the construction, right? Improving yeah,
0: once again, and you might be able, that's the other benefit with the, the supply and demand imbalances that that we're seeing rates continue to go up and up and up because there's just not enough space. So but that's the same thing. You know it's just you might to sweeten the deal, negotiate some tenant improvements and but it's all negotiation. So you're just looking for operators that have got strong negotiating skills, know what they're doing, have a Rolodex, relationships with tenants and, and certainly owners, the ability to acquire these things at the right price too.
1: Is it, of course, we've never done any industrial life bridge. Uh, and so I just wondered, is it common for the management to be done in-house uh, or do you still yes. hire a third party for most industrial? Yeah, no,
0: it's, it's super common. It's it's common for that reason because it just, it's... Much more simple. It's much more simple, right? And so even if, because the things on a triple net lease, you know, that you're responsible for those are things that aren't difficult to go find a, a contractor to repair the roof or you know what I mean? like you get six bids, like any of us, anyone could do that. And probably not anyone, but most people
1: could, I why don't more tenants buy their own buildings?
0: It, I mean, that's one of the pieces that you're seeing is just you're seeing a lot more sale leasebacks. So a deal that we just closed a few weeks ago, and that's what it was. and and I, I think I think the reason is just people realize like, if, especially if they acquired the real estate a, a while ago, they've they got some equity in it. So it's just sitting on their balance sheet and they can't, they can't use it. So you've got that dynamic. And then when it comes to just them looking out to acquire, it's not to say they don't, because of course people do, but I just think it's, it's just optionality and just knowing that if they're a growing business, it's the same issue you have with or had with office space back in the day when mm-hmm. we all had offices. But it's just like, if you're, if you're, if you're running enterprise, you're probably trying to grow it and then you outgrow the space and need other facilities. So they just don't want the hassle of being a real estate owner, knowing that they're probably going to end up with, if they execute their own plan and vision, they'll have three, four different buildings. And it it just, I think it just gives them the optionality and and not having to deal with the headache, but there's still, it's not to say that people don't buy their own building because they certainly do. Like the, the deal that we're working on right now, that operator uh, or that tenant we've we've negotiated a a purchase option at year five and at year seven at a seven cap. So they they want to buy the building. It's just that they're transitioning out of another facility that they're lease. So they just don't they're just not ready to pull the trigger on that right now. That makes sense. Uh, what are the I say common terms
1: ALP could expect in an industrial deal like this or how how long is an investment? Is it different for industrial than multifamily and some of the things they could expect?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so our, our strategy is to, is it so just it differs, right? You're going to have the, the long term hold guys who want to hold it forever. But I mean, most of these leases are going to be five years, seven years. So it could be similar, right? To a, a multifamily. I'd say that's probably average is that they're going to end, end, you know, five years. But like our strategy is to find stuff where the leases are close to expiring. And, and our intent is to once we renew them or put new leases on the books is to basically put it back in the market. So we're looking to turn ours more, but that's just a, that's just a strategic choice that we've made. We like to turn them every you know, three. We want to, we buy it today. We want to sell it in three to four years if possible. Like in that case of the one deal we'll probably end up being year five. But, uh, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's the big thing is just to understand that it's how the value add works and when the value add will be added and it's going to be driven around the leases. So it's really looking at what is that weighted average lease term for the the given property that you're looking at. And you can pretty much figure out about when that value add will be added and, and that's they're either going to refi it at that time and then hold it for another, you know, couple of years and and sell or just go ahead and sell it right after that. How have the increase in interest rates affected this asset class? I mean, I think it has on the coasts more, where it's just it's it's more competitive and and not as lucrative. So, I mean, once again, the market drives some risk too, right? So, but but in ours, I mean, it works. I mean, we're sort of underwriting everything to around a seven percent interest rate, and we're getting local bank financing versus. So so I mean, for us, that's it. It really hasn't because most of the deals we're looking at, we're we're looking at deals that are like ten caps going in usually in seven eight cap markets once again it's like that's our strategy it's just our strategy is we're really only we really only want to hit like triples and and home runs so it's all about getting in a really good basis but but yeah they they pencil even at a seven percent interest rate
1: what do you what what are you expecting to say the next six twelve eighteen months to look like just in the
0: this real estate market in general and maybe even
1: specific for industrial
0: yeah, I mean I'm I'm as interested as the next guy on the market in general particularly just with multifamily just what's going to happen here with with the shakeout and I just think that how all this 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 debt ends up how that shakes out is going it, to it it's going to dramatically alter it, it, how this thing works, right? And I don't think anybody knows and I don't I certainly don't know, but I know that there was a lot of floating rate debt that was put on a lot of these things and bridge debt. And, and I just know that that's not looking good right now because I'm in the camp that I just tend to believe that I don't think these interest rates are going to be going down anytime super soon. I just, I just don't think that's going to happen. Maybe a little bit, but not enough to rescue those guys. Right. right? And so, and, and I think you see that across the board I mean, anybody who was of the oak the the overly exuberant sort of phase and, and and bought wrong or at the top with any kind of debt could be in trouble so you're going to see some amount of distress strictly because of how certain deals were capitalized but that's how I'm looking at it and, and I guess from us from on the industrial side I, I think it should be a little bit more immune to it, but I'm hoping that I hate to I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll actually end up being able to acquire some stuff that's distressed because of the same thing, just not capitalized properly. And that's what I've always told all my advisory clients, whether it's a fund or anything, I'm just like, it It really is, it's super, super important how you capitalize any any asset, real estate in particular, or if it's loans or whatever. I mean, you could have performing assets that that are fine, but if you didn't capitalize it properly, it it can sink you. So going back to L, from an LP's perspective, I mean, and everyone's learning now, like, yeah, you don't just gloss over that debt slide. Like that debt slide's pretty darn important. And just understanding who's who's the lender, what are those terms, and the fine print. I mean, I don't know how many people I've heard from that like somehow, some way didn't even realize that that there was no cap on their floating rate debt. Like, to me, that's just, it seems crazy. Like I just don't understand that. But I think that's just what happens is people they get moving so fast. And and I and I do think too, just from LPs to fully understand, right? Like when when operators, no matter what asset class you're in, and you tie up a deal and you go through all this due diligence and you might get a term sheet at some point from lenders, right? But it is one of the last things to be finalized, right? Because the appraisals gotta come in and the the building report, inspection, all that stuff sort of lags, and when you're when you're being marketed a deal, a lot of that stuff is still sort of in flight because right. just the, the timing is so tight on a syndicated yeah. deal, right? And so there is some wobble there, and and there is a chance that things can be overlooked. So just everyone has to keep that in mind that some checklists are important and things like that just to make sure you haven't overlooked anything. Speak to preparing for a downturn say in an industrial
1: type asset or what is it what, what does the downturn look like what would cause that uh, and I say, it sounds like well obviously tenant moves out right it's single tenant well recession yeah i mean yeah, so sometimes
0: yeah so that's why the tenants are so important right because you have right? to look at their financials and the business they're in so you really need to understand just business in general which i think most real estate guys do i mean, just sort of i think it's just part of if you are like real estate you're probably like business and you, you pay attention to what's going on, but yeah, I mean, I think a mild recession, it probably doesn't affect it very much. Maybe more so if you have more local tenants, just because they tend to be impacted at a, at a higher rate than through it. Or just where people are, I mean, the good news with industrial just in particular is that. And this is what made it great through COVID too. Is that like these people can't work from home, the businesses that operate their, their businesses depend upon the real estate. You know what I mean? Like right. so they like it, it's it's one of the things they're going to protect. Now people might lose jobs and they might cut in other areas, but I mean if they just default on their lease and throw in the keys in their lease, that that means it's a really really bad situation. And then to move all the stuff and. All those sorts of things, the logistics involved, it usually causes them to go look elsewhere, but which is why I say a mild recession probably won't affect it as much. If anything, it would depress prices and make it more attractive to go buy some stuff, which is what I think is going to happen, right? I think we'll have a mild recession and I, I don't anticipate a, a deep, deep recession, which, which would cause all sorts of problems across the board. And I don't think anything would be immune to it at that point. Right, right. Tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Yeah, I think the best way is on LinkedIn. just search Lance Peterson, connect me f- with me there, and we can take it from there. but uh, yeah, I think that's the most expedient way to, to connect.:
1: Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the real estate syndication show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.